everybody. It is great to be here one more time today. And my name is Gary Fowler, and I am the CEO, president, and co-founder of GSD Get Shit Done Venture Studios. I'm a serial entrepreneur and investor. I've been involved in 17 startups and two unicorns. I was on the original management team of Click Software, which was sold to Salesforce for $1.35 billion, and also EBA.ai, an AI HR tech company. We go all over the world looking for the most incredible companies that, yes, can make a difference in the world. And with that, I'd like to introduce my incredible guest today. So Richard Kane is the CEO of Coastal Technologies Group and also Verajet, Chief Executive Officer. He's a guru that's developed incredible AI that's been used in multiple vertical markets, including the industry the transportation industry, airlines. So he's a researcher in artificial intelligence. He's a judge at the X Prize. I mean, he's a he's got an incredible, incredible uh, background in technology, bringing it to each one of us. So you and me, so it makes the world a better place. And with that, I'd like to introduce my friend and guest, Richard. Hey, Richard, how you doing today? Good morning, Gary. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, no, so I got a question for you. So. You know, I was looking at your uh, CV and I looked at Rye Country Day School Computer Science. So you studied, were you in computer science when you were in high school? I'm afraid that I helped found the computer center at my high school, wrote some commercial software, got written up in the New York Times for it. And the principal of the school left his job to market my software. And started oh a software company. Yeah. Wow, that's great. So the principal left the school to market your software. Yep. And, and then it even gets worse. State university systems in Florida bought my software. And I was doing tech support for one of the deans. And he goes, son, how old are you? And I give him an honest answer. And he goes, we have this program. We'll let you skip two years of college. The people that made the IBM PC will be your professors backed up by the guys at Motorola that do VLSI chip fabrication. These were new things back then. And they, they kidnapped me to Florida, and it's, life's never been the same. And how old were you then, Richard? 17. Wow, that's great. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. So you went on to Florida Atlantic University, and uh, you got your bachelor's degree there in math and computer science. Okay, so how did you get involved? This whole thing with artificial intelligence, um, how did you get involved in it? What happened? So you did the high school thing, you did the college thing, but where did you say, well, I'm interested in artificial intelligence? Wow. All right. So this goes back to high school again. Do you remember the game Othello? Flipping mm -hmm. pieces. All right. So I wrote an AI program on a pet Commodore to play Othello. And that was my first AI program. The 8032 or the 9000? Uh, it's green screen. I guess it was the 9000. And um, yeah, Okay. I remember those. It became unbeatable, and, and you just get hooked with that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, more recently, all the advances in AI, instead of trying to eke every cycle out of these primitive chips, um, now we have incredible tool sets. And I, I can do things in a weekend that would normally be a team of 100 people for three years. So it's it's astonishing. No, that's great. So you got involved in the X Prize. Let's talk about the X Prize. What do you do there, and what's the X Prize all about? So the XPRIZE puts up incentive prizes to advanced technology for solving grand challenges. So the, the first XPRIZE was to unlock space tourism. And this was a prize to fly a piece of space hardware to suborbital space and 
do it again in you know two weeks time with 90 percent parts reusability we were trying to get uh, cheaper access to space and there weren't enough satellite launches and we thought well space tourism and and by we we're talking about peter diamandis founder of x prize and I, i'm just one of the hundred people that supported it originally uh but phenomenally successful. So it went from crazy, we want amateurs to build a spaceship to, you know, and it can't be done. And we'll sell you a, um, an insurance policy, like a hole in one policy, because no one believes it can be done. We went from that to um, Spaceship One, winning the X Prize, being licensed by Richard Branson. 17 years later, I was in the desert uh, with Sir Richard on a, a, his first commercial launch. It's like seeing your student grow up and graduate college with honors. You can now buy a ticket to suborbital space, and it's game changer. And, and we did this for a couple of reasons. One was for cheaper access. But second, the influencers on this planet will be flying that spaceship, and they'll see the Earth, and they'll see the curvature of the Earth and the fragility of what we have here, and they won't see the country lines and that whole halo effect, and they will change everything. It's I have not been there personally yet. The closest I've gotten is the Concorde. You can see a little bit of the curve and the sky looks a little purple, but to see the earth from space is shattering and changes your whole mindset. And that's part of what we're trying to achieve. And the rest is cheap access to space to unlock all the resources that are there. So what's, what's the end game? I mean, everybody says they want to go to space. What's the real deal? Why are so many people put a bunny in it? It's like, you know, Elon Musk's here. Branson's there, Bezos there. Why is it for the um, the rights, the mineral rights, or what's the end game? Yeah, so my end game is twofold. My personal one, one, I would love to have the Kane suborbital point-to-point -point X price, but by the time I get there, someone will have done it. So you skip outside Earth's atmosphere. There's no more friction. You're two hours anywhere on the surface of the planet using less energy than a 747 does LA Sydney. So none of this is unreasonable. In fact, a lot of it already exists. So unlocking that kind of transportation. I, with XPRIZE, I was personally involved in SPS 2000, Solar Power Systems 2000, um, mostly led by the Japanese, but this is unlimited clean energy collected in space, beamed down to earth. So let's say there's a natural disaster, say Puerto Rico gets wiped out and the power grid's gone. You unravel an antenna called a rectenna on the ground and you beam energy from space and you've restored power and and it's instant and well, that's kind of like nikola tesla yeah the, the ability to beam energy is there the japanese were flying a blimp that was powered from the ground with a microwave beam so it clearly can be done and you know the beam is wide the receiver is the size of a football field but because of that you don't get fried flying through it and birds can fly through it they're fine so it's it's one key to unlimited clean energy, which then you can crack water, make hydrogen, do all sorts of amazing things and, and change our whole energy infrastructure. No, and, well, as long as you don't skinny it up and create a particle beam weapon, right? You can do that too. Uh, paraphrasing XPRIZE, you know, everything we fight wars over is available in unlimited quantities in space. So real estate, energy, mineral wealth, and it's, it's absolutely true. Well, but, you know, I, I talked to one of my friends, uh, who's a uh, NASA astronaut, Christopher Altman, and a quantum physicist. And he said today, and we have these discussions uh, on, a, on a fairly frequent basis, but he said that there's 6 billion Earth-like planets in the Milky Way galaxy, an estimated 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. 
So, you know, the thing is, he said, one of the, once you go out to space and you look down at the earth, you understand how small it's really one of those, uh, you know, those um, um, soul searching experiences where people look down and you just understand how infinitesimal and all the problems that we create here, how really small they are to the, you know, the universe. I just had the privilege of flying one of the founders of the ECAM movement and her goal is to create 800,000 enlightened human beings that will wake the rest of us up to take better stewardship of the earth. And of course I have the technology fixed to that. Just put them on spaceship one, let them see the earth from space. It's instant. There you go. That's it. <laughs> yep. Not, not quite the meditative path to get there, but it's, I think it might be more profound. Well, it's going to be interesting, Richard, you know, as we go down through and start to explore, you know, I saw yesterday on Mars, there was something looked very uh, much like a, um, a um, coral in the ocean, right? I don't know if you saw it, the uh, flower that they said, but it looks more like coral to me. But it's interesting when we start to come up, up, start to figure out there was life on some of these planets or there is life on these planets, what kind of reaction are we going to have and what are we going to do? You know, one of my friends said, a couple of weeks ago to me, he said, uh, we had this in-depth conversation. He said, we talked about space travel, going to Mars, and he's got enough money to, you know, be one of the ones that does it. And he said to me, Gary, why would I want to go to Mars? He said, we've screwed up this planet. Should we be allowed to go to another one and mess that one up too? And I didn't think about that ever like that, but, you know, we got to figure out how to get along better, how to be able to, to use the resources more wisely because we've got this beautiful, beautiful planet that's really falling apart in all kinds of different ways that can be helped if we all band together to do it. And I know, you know, some of the things that you're working on, especially with Verijet having these um, very fuel efficient uh, jets that are carbon fiber, extremely safe, it's just the next generation of travel. So with that, let's talk about it. So tell me about, you know, and you know, I've been, had the pleasure of being able to fly in your jets uh, twice. Um, how did you come up with that? When, what day did you say, I'm going to use these jets, these Cirrus jets, and I'm going to create this incredible uh, short haul company? When did you come up with that idea? So there's a journey here. And it, believe it or not, started with the mathematics of routing telephone calls, 100 million an hour, 14 billion while the phone's ringing. And did that for a decade. And part of the reason long distance is nearly free is some of the work that was done in that industry. We thought, what else can we do with this? And I had a board that included pilots. I'm a pilot. And we thought routing fleets of aircraft would have more economic, social, environmental impact. And at the time, the fleets were flying 40% empty. And after a decade, we got that to closer to 20% empty. And the best floating fleet operators in the US have run an AI platform that I put together to do that. And that's incredible amounts of carbon, that incredible amounts of energy. I once calculated it's enough to charge 98 billion cell phones a month. It's, it's, it's wow. And so why did we not do that before? Why were 40% um, empty seats? Why was that? Or 40%, was it 40% full or 40% empty? 40% empty. So people are looking across well, people were not looking across their um, charter operators, just like the phone companies weren't connecting to make a national network. I took six regional phone companies and tied them together in the National Telecommunications Network 
And we went after AT&T and MCI and gave them some competition. In the same way, we took six really great regional charter operators and said, you know what, let's treat this as a virtual fleet. Maybe let's compete with NetJets. If you don't have a strong brand and you're just managing a fleet, um, let's trade a customer. So you're both not repositioning empty. But even before that, let's use your fleet better. So by the time you get past about 11 aircraft, it's something that a human being can't do anymore. They can't hold in their mind. And when you get to 70 aircraft, it's just flat out impossible. And so the AI problem, even with all the firepower we have, you don't get the absolute best solution. But if you get in the best 2 or 3%, you can save incredible amounts of money. 7% of operating costs, all of this carbon. It's 16 quintillion routing solutions. That's a 16 with 18 zeros on a medium-sized fleet. It's just beyond what a human oh, That's amazing. Yeah. And so, so you've nailed it. So what, you know, if you compare what you have with Verijet with the competition out there, what are the advantages of Verijet? And tell us a little bit about a, what a Verijet looks like. Yeah, so w when you're running the software and you're, you're doing the routing and you get people from 40% to 20% empty, that's the software fix, right? But then we were still flying a heavy metal jet on short distances. And I saw a lot of that, perhaps 80% of all the light jet traffic that we were seeing was less than four people, less than 600 miles, should have been on something safer, carbon fiber, more environmentally friendly. So I've been looking at the vision jet development for basically 15 years and, and looking at the potential to use this and working with the co-founders of Cirrus to figure out how to deploy this in a commercial operation. The, here's the basics. When you're flying on a short hop, there's no time for the jets that are tuned to go high and fast to climb to 41,000 feet and be efficient. And half the Earth's atmosphere is below 18,000 feet. So you have higher air density, believe it or not, speed limits, routing. You never get to use the speed of those jets down low. And yet they're burning enormous quantities of fuel. Half the fuel burn is climbing through 18,000 feet on these big jets. And they have engines designed and tuned to go high and fast. We have an engine that has a cruise missile heritage designed to go low and slow in a body that's carbon fiber. So that's really important because we don't have metal fatigue. We don't have cycle costs. What's happening here, as you inflate and deflate a metal fuselage, you're introducing metal fatigue and you combine that with corrosion and then you have loss of life accidents and you have incredibly expensive inspections and we don't have any of that. So we're tuned to make little hops, think of Uber for jets, and we don't even count our cycles. It doesn't impact our cost. Everything else you start it up and it can cost $1,000 just to start it. And if you fly it on a 20 minute hop, you've lost as much life as if you cross the country. So there are incredible machines like the Citation 10. They're nearly supersonic. It's an amazing, miraculous piece of technology, but it's supposed to cross the country at 41,000 feet. If you take it from Santa Monica to Las Vegas in 200 miles, and it's only flying at 19,000 feet, it's an ecological nightmare. And then if you're doing that with two people, it's what AOC would call criminally negligent. It's just stupid. It's, and, and so this is the right tool for the but job. That's what they do, right? I mean, a lot of times people fly with two people on a plane and... What's the cost differential? Let's say you take a citation from LA to Las Vegas, compare that to a Verijet. 
What's the difference in cost savings? It's on the order of eight or ten thousand versus three thousand. Sometimes fourteen thousand versus three thousand. It's, it's double or triple. Sometimes mm-hmm. quadruple. It's, and how about in terms of say safety? What about when you get into jets? Uh, how safe are jets, by the way? Because every once in a while you hear about a jet uh, uh, crashing and and uh, a problem. I mean, how's that? How do they compare with the Verajet? So our machines are brand new. They come right off the factory line. They have a whole airframe parachute. If something really goes wrong, a ballistic rocket motor blows a parachute out the nose, lowers the whole airframe to the ground. In the propeller version of this plane, it's been used to save something like 140 lives already. And it's very effective. The plane also can land itself at the touch of a button, something called Safer's Turn, partnered with Garmin. So if the pilot is disabled, the plane can still land itself. The passenger's press a button on the ceiling, the plane lands itself. And so, how does it know how, which airport to go to and how to be able to come into the uh, runway? I mean, how does that help? How does it, that work? It, it's AI on board. It's looking at the terrain, the weather, the remaining fuel, the winds, picking a runway lined up with the winds, going to that runway, calling for help for the pilot. The whole time it's talking to the passengers. You know, we'll be landing in three minutes. And, and then it rolls to a stop, breaks. Um, have you ever tried? Have you ever... Uh, been in one and tested it they're going down through and so when you press that button um it calls for help and there's a lot of paperwork so they encourage us not to do that but it's part of our training for the system but beyond all that there's something like 20 additional components of the envelope of safety in this chat mm-hmm. so if i make a mistake the ai catches it and i routinely demonstrate that i'll forget to turn on a de-icer and the system reminds me or I'll line up on the wrong runway and the system tells me. And that's done intentionally. And I, I show my passengers how, you know, the, the riskiest part of flying is actually taxiing at the airport. One 747 taxied onto an active runway, another headed at Tenerife. It's the single greatest loss of life in aviation. And I show how our airplane resolves that issue in, in multiple ways. And then there was an accident where an air crew lined up on the wrong runway, 30 degrees off the one they should have been on. It was too short loss of life accident. So I show how our airplane knows it's on the wrong runway, but it also knows how many feet are required for takeoff. Now, our typical ground roll is 2,000 feet or less. You can't find too many airports with runways less than 2,000 feet, and we wouldn't operate there anyway. So the runway is always long enough for us, but it's nice to have that cross check. And, and so all of this is built into our machine. And well, Richard, how what's a, let's compare. So a citation, how long, how long is a runway got to be on a citation compared to a Verajet? Probably the citation tends probably 5,000 feet and we're very comfortable in 3,000 and we can take off or stop in 2,000 when we need to. It, it's, it's game changing. So this opens up 5,400 airports around the U.S. We can fly to the close-in small airport like Augusta for the Masters. I recently flew someone up to Essex. He wanted to go to Teterboro. I explained to him that Essex is 15 minutes more drive time into the city, but will be number one for landing, number one for takeoff. Fuel is $3 a gallon cheaper. We're not going to be circling and waiting to land. And by the way, this was in a 100-year storm about two months ago, the blizzard that trapped people on the turnpike overnight. And we were number one for landing and he made his appointment and we got back in the plane and we were number one for takeoff. And you fly right over Teterboro and see the traffic jam. And they're not using Essex because of the runway length. So it opens up a infrastructure in the U.S. that's less than 1% utilized. 
And it, it works in Europe too. If you're trying to go to Saint-Tropez and club Saint-Consin, the runway's too short. You have to land your Falcon an hour and a half away and drive or take a helicopter. We can fly right there and you don't get carbon shamed and you make very little noise. Um, by the way, our call sign is Whisperjet because our airplanes are quiet. They're 50 decibels quieter than stage four noise requirements. When I'm on a runway, I don't hear our jet until the tires touch down. It's incredible. And you know, the, the fuel burn, the noise, the carbon, it checks all the boxes. No, that's great. And so what do you vision? What's your vision for the future? What's going to happen in the next couple of years with uh, the market and transportation and short haul flights? What do you see happening? So we're going to migrate to sustainable aviation fuel. There's an X prize for carbon sequestration funded by Elon Musk, announced by Peter Diamandis. If you really dig, you'll find a tweet from Peter. I'm at Kennedy Space Center and I just launched the uh, carbon sequestration X prize with Elon. And now I'm flying Verage at home to see my mom. That's one of my favorite tweets. Oh, um, that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. So extending the life of our jet engines, we're going to go to sustainable aviation fuel. And whether that's blue-green algae making it, or it's extracted from the air, or it's uh, cellular material, uh, cellulose from plants, wherever it comes from, we'll have uh, you know, carbon neutral. I've committed to the Lindbergh Foundation. I serve on their board. Eric Lindbergh's on our board to make Verajet 10% carbon negative. So you fly Verajet, you're actually removing carbon from the atmosphere. Right now we're carbon neutral. So sustainable aviation fuel will extend the life of our jets, but then we're also going electric. We plan to fly the Beta Alia, which is zero emissions, drops the cost of maintenance and fuel to where it starts to look like Uber ground, to where it's cheap enough to commute to work, to change where you live and work, and tell us a little bit about what is that going to be a jet or what kind of vehicle will that be? That's an EV top. Uh, it's a vertical takeoff, glides horizontal. It's different than the ones you may have seen that look like upsized drones. You like, what about the Osprey? Is it like the Osprey or what is it? So it doesn't have the tilt rotor mechanisms with the complexity and the weight. It has very few moving parts. Um, some motors lift it up vertically and then it switches to basically be an airplane with an enormous wing with a pusher prop. And so you get the efficiency of an airplane, but you get the ability to do the VTOL trip. Um, you're going to see them first moving packages for UPS and Amazon, moving transplant organs and patients uh, for United Therapeutics. And, but then eventually as all that goes well, uh, we'll be applying for passenger carrying. Verajet uh, and Blade should be the first operators of that machine. And we're proud to be there. It's groundbreaking. That's great. And where are you going to do it first? What, what, which, what are your plans? Major cities or where are you going to go? It's southeast and northeast. So imagine you fly. Um, this is a real example today. You fly Air Canada to Fort Lauderdale. So Larry O'Brien's the former mayor of Ottawa. He's an investor in our company, Verajet. We call this the Larry O'Brien shuttle. He flies Air Canada to Fort Lauderdale. We put him in a jet and take him to Key West or take him to Naples. And he's there in 45 minutes instead of five hours of driving. Now imagine we do that with a beta Leah and, and it's a tenth of the price and it's carbon zero. And it's a tenth of the price. Yep. And it's and a thousand times safer than a helicopter. All of this is not just about the utility of the transportation. It's also about the safety. It's a big part of what we're doing. Well, why tell me about helicopters. Why aren't they safe and how do they compare? So a helicopter can do something called an auto rotate if it loses power. 
and it's very dependent on the pilot being on their game. And if the pilot's well rested and on their game, they auto rotate, everyone walks right. It's pretty okay. Your your sense of landing spots are limited though. If you're in a beta Aaliyah and for some reason you lose power, which is incredibly unlikely, it's got alternate, can take battle damage, it's amazing. But let's say you lost power, you have a 20 to one glide ratio. I've been towed into the air on a rope and they cut the rope and you have no engine and you glide on things that are like 14 to one. The beta is a far better glider than custom made gliders. Mm -hmm. So you have that ability. It can also spiral down and, and land. And that's something it does on its own. And it's millions and millions and millions of flight hours before the four engines in a quadrant might ever have a problem. So it's, it's radically safer. Now, do you even need pilots going forward? Won't these things be that smart? They can do it on their own. So the beta is pilot optional. It's five passengers and a, and a pilot. It is autonomous. Will the FAA buy into that, though, if it's uh, pilot autonomous? So I've spoken to the administrator, and the plan is essentially we're going to fly millions of packages. And if we don't drop any, then we'll apply for people. And if we do, we'll fix it until we don't drop any. So that's. Oh, that's. Well, that's and what about helicopters? So, how safe are helicopters? I mean, how often do the helicopters, you know, out of flights, what percentage of the time do they have problems? So, I can't speak to that, but I attend the UP conference and Bell Helicopter brings their prototype. And Bell Helicopter is no longer called Bell Helicopter, they're called Bell. So, that should give you a loud and clear signal as to where this is going. But the first uses of the beta Aaliyah will be life-saving. They'll be for organ transplant emergencies. And I can tell you that that type of helicopter flying, where the pilots are challenged to fly in adverse weather, is very, very dangerous compared to everything else. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the life-saving pressure. And, and so there's been a lot of regulation to, to back that off. But, you know, if you can do that autonomously in zero, zero, um, it's not just saving the lives of the, the accident victims and the people that need the emergency transplants. Um, it's saving the lives of the aircrews because it, that's the most dangerous type of flying that helicopters do. And understandably so. And these are incredibly brave, capable pilots, but um, you know, they're being pressured to make decisions that are at the risk envelope at the edge of that. And so some of that's going to get fixed. Interesting. So let's get down through. We're coming to the top of the hour, and I wanted to get down through closing thoughts and how do people get a hold of you. So for Verajet, if you'd like to fly on the West Coast or the Southeast, it's just 833 Verajet, and you don't have to be a member, and you just fly. And once you try it, you will be astonished. I can talk all day about how great airplane is. Do you have a picture of the Verajet, right, that you could show them what it looks like? Is there any chance? Do you just even have a hard sure. copy of something? You can show them. So I'll share the screen. We'll do this. And are you seeing the picture? No. Ah, all right. Well, maybe sharing the screen didn't work. But here we go. Share the entire screen. Share. Okay, we'll try it again. Now oh, are you seeing the picture? Yeah, hold on. Let me bring it up. There we are. Yep. So that's what they look like. Um, now, are they really flying there? Is that? Uh, uh, oh no, they're um, they're the same jet, but they can fly. You've flown them in formation, right? No, th this is a real picture. This is not Photoshop. This is over Napa. We took our pilots. We put them paired with military formation pilots and put a 
camera gunship to take this picture. And so this is a two-parter. One is it's an amazing graphic and shows what we can do. But two, this was incredibly fun for our pilots. The ones that are not military, they get to have an experience that lights them up. So Veriget is very much about sharing the amazing visibility and capability and joy of flying and restoring all that to the experience. It's actually about the experience of flying. And, and so these kind of experiences for our pilots make that a reality. Now they're beautiful, beautiful planes. I've been in them with you and just a beautiful. So let's, um, so how do people get a hold of you? What's the best way for them to get a hold of you? So just 833-Varajet if they want to fly. Richard, right oh, now. Alexa seems to be talking to us. Um, or Richard at Varajet.com. Uh, hang on a second. Thankfully, you know, right now you can still. I've had that happen with my Siri too, and it's, it's like strange times. Thankfully, for the moment, we can still unplug AI. So let's make sure we can always do that. That's <laughs> yeah. great. And so that's super. Well, Richard, I appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule to join us today. To my audience out there, my name is Gary Fowler, and I am the CEO, President, and Co founder of Get Shit Done GSD Venture Studios, a premier AI and quantum venture studio. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of GSD Presents next Tuesday, same time. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. And to all my friends in the Ukraine out there, we're thinking about you. We love you. And we want to make sure that uh, this madness ends uh, sooner than later. So let's spread some love around the world. Thanks, Richard. And again, thank, thank you, everybody. Take care of yourself.